0: Great. So um, I'll kick it off because I, you know, I've been really excited for this. I, um, you know, looking into what you've been doing and with your your interesting background um, between the navy and you know flying helicopters and so forth. Um, you know, now with what you're doing in quantum, um, it really seemed like the the best kind of mix to talk about a topic such as drone security, um, especially within, say, UAS and counter UAS. And, you know, I'm going to put some drone questions to you, but the the first thing that I would love to know about is understanding your background, you know, really helping me kind of mater- materialize what pushed you into drones. So if you could maybe just give me a, a little bit about your background, maybe some of your, your experience and what you've done. Um, that would be wonderful.
1: I joined the Royal Navy as a helicopter pilot, a specialist helicopter pilot, uh, sort of back end of the Cold War, which makes me sound quite old. I don't feel as old as that makes me sound, but uh, I specialized <laughs> uh, back, back in the day in chasing submarines around uh, our, our, our friends in Russia mainly. Um, inevitably you start to broaden your experience. And I drifted into uh, search and rescue after a few years. And in the Navy at the time, uh, although we kept dedicated search and rescue squadrons, the primary role of those was actually uh, counterterrorism and delivering the various uh, effects that that requires. Uh, And it was probably then that I started to uh, look beyond pure flying as a potential career in the Navy. Uh, I was a flying instructor as well, but inevitably you get eventually dragged into a headquarters somewhere. Uh, and for me, that started uh, with a NATO job in the um, in Naples, in the Maritime Component Commanders uh, headquarters there. A uh, great place to be, and they had some really interesting things going on uh, in the Mediterranean. And um, there's a an operation there that is – there's a thing in NATO called Article 5, so an attack on one nation is considered an attack on them all. And since 9-11, those guys had been running an operation in the Med to uh, provide a CT uh, function there, and I, I got involved in that and um, some of the novel ways to uh, deliver effect in the CT context. And additionally, I, I, I was uh, responsible for uh, EU cooperation. Um, it probably was better uh, better cooperation between NATO and the EU than it is between uh, the UK and the EU at the moment but uh, <laughs> we, we 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 got into the strategic level ct stuff in in terms of how you would deliver uh, a broad range of effects the planning and the responses to uh, a terrorism incident in the mediterranean area uh, so then I so so now I'd had some direct experience uh, without going into the details of, of, of that. So I ended up flying again. But what really crystallised um, CT and S based security in particular for me was in um, when I was responsible for running a desk in our headquarters in Portsmouth Navy Royal Navy headquarters, and uh, that came with various hats, regulatory uh, mainly, but um, also with another CT hat on. So at this point we were much more plugged into um, joint CT from an air perspective uh, via Director of Special Forces in, uh, in London. And we got the responsibility of planning the air security for the London Olympics. And that was a two-year project, multi-layered project across yeah all, wow. the stakeholders, all the stakeholders you can imagine and you know it's it's easy to think when the military involved in this sort of thing that it's you know it's all about pulling the trigger on something but it was actually a really broad that involved transport authorities security media organizing committees uh, people who own uh, real estate owners all, all sorts of stuff as well as air traffic management and contingency planning all, just a huge project really broad and it was then that i started to look at this sort of airspace security in detail and we were for the olympics we were we were planning to take the entire threat spectrum on which was from we didn't really think about drones in the in the sense that we do today but remote controlled aircraft was probably the way we would have described them right up mm. to a, a heavy jet airliner you know in that horrible nine eleven uh, situation uh, as you can imagine there's usually standing uh plans for responding to a jet but uh for, for everything below that uh if you don't if you don't want really to get too draconian in your response there had to be layers of uh, capabilities generated because we just didn't have them uh and it was it was my role in that for those couple of years it really uh crystallized uh the thought in my mind that there's something here that was interesting and perhaps could translate into the civilian space eventually so my escape plan from the navy was hatched at that point <laughs>
0: Yeah right. and and how far before the Olympic Games did they start that planning phase for that you know the Olympic Games, that committee or that joint task force as you were talking about? How far before it they start planning for that? and did you see that happen in in different phases or was that a full-time you know gig for yourself?
1: It was a, it started about two and a half years before the games themselves. Uh, in earnest, although there, there was work going on since the day we got awarded the games, uh, although I wasn't involved in that, uh, it, it became it was a, a sort of fifty-fifty job share, if you like. Uh, uh, probably from about two thousand and ten, it gradually grew and grew over the next year, sort of thirty months into being a virtually a full-time job, and uh, I'm not complaining about that at all because it was a really (laughs) fascinating and interesting um, role. Uh, Arguably, um, you know, the most uh, historic defence of the capital since the Second World War. You know, it was a real joint effort from, you know, not often you get Army, Navy and Air Force guys working together as well as all our uh, friends and partners from the civilian space. Um, The other interesting thing was you don't often in the UK I think it's the same in, uh, in in other countries. You don't often get um, military operations on home soil. They tend to be deployed overseas, and anything to, to do with security is a premise usually of the police or the security services. So it's unusual that you get uh, such a, a large deployment of military uh, force in your home nation, uh, in the West anyway. Uh, so we, we had to... Learn how to cooperate with our uh, civilian masters, should we say? So we're very much working for the police. Uh, they, they, they're uh, in the UK anyway. In, in the UK anyway, they're very much the security lead, uh, and any, anything to do with the uh, security CT uh, issues, is the, the the police have primacy every time, usually. Uh, and so uh, we had to establish that and get out of our stovepipes and start cooperating. And uh, you know that was the part of the learning experience for us. And when you when you if you've when you've seen a big project like that come together and you um, mm-hmm. uh, how do you measure success? Success actually is that nothing happened um, because if if you have to respond, then you, you might argue that uh, some part of the project has yeah. failed because you you haven't deterred your your, your enemy. But uh, so it's uh, you know a unique experience, and um, it's certainly given us a lot of um, insight into how you create the whole holistic airspace security uh space for
0: yourselves Mm. you know uh, especially at home ground you know it's it's not a a remote um type of thing you're doing it's it's right at home and i'm sure there's lots of other um precautionary measures you probably had to take that you may not have had to consider if it was outside of of the country or the territory you were in. Mm.
1: Yeah, very much so. For one thing, you're over a large city, so uh, you're always thinking, what is the so what of doing something? You know, in simple terms, what's the collateral effect? Uh, you know, stop the plane and it crashes into 500 people. Is that, is that worth it? Uh, so uh, the decision-making chain to engage something had to be very uh, reactive, but very swift so there's a lot of training involved it usually would come down to uh, a politician uh, if not the prime minister in this country then somebody uh, designated by that person and so anyone who's just trying to do any normal radio communication uh, when you're flying around knows it can sometimes be a little bit painful and uh, we could not afford yeah. those delays so i mean there's just an, an awful lot of uh, moving parts in an operation like that that had to work first time uh, so there's a lot of training, a lot of, um, and of course we were never really resourced for this. It was all just done uh, within your normal uh, capabilities. <laughs> it was real head scratchers sometimes. Go, I need, I know, I, I want to do this, but no one's given me any money to do
0: it, so I'll, I'll have to uh, have to improvise. Mm. But you know, uh,
1: touch wood, it went okay.
0: Yeah, no, well, and congratulations for that. I guess it was uh, an effort of how many people you think were were taking part in that joint? Exercise or you know comp- thousands of uh, just military people alone, and
1: many thousands more in the civilian space, and the police security and transport authorities. You name it. Mm. I mean, uh, that that was what's so interesting about it, uh, and, and and so impressive. Not, not my role in it, but the, the overall project was so impressive from the way that we managed to get those stovepipes down where people you know worked in isolation and sort of uh, integrate them across across the space, and that that was uh, probably the biggest success of the whole thing
0: yeah and that that decision chain process you're talking about you know that would um, potentially have a, a quality gate of time if you will where a decision has to be made or, or needs to be made in a very quick time. how does that say translate to something like a threat let's say drones which is extremely close extremely quick you know the range is probably less than you know five kilometers where there's the potential impact for something to happen. Do you think those same types of decisions you were planning for back then, in 2012, um, would carry across to an event today, or let's say if you were planning for, you know, the Olympics that were taking place in, in 2022 or something like that? Do you think that's similar, or is that going to be a completely separate approach when involving something that is now, you know, close proximity, air, ground, you name it?
1: Uh, I think if you've not had the experience of it before, you probably Think, yeah, we can manage this. Okay, I, I think you make a, a, a good point. It does translate very well into the sort of drone space because you're right the, in the commercial drone threat, which is part of what we deal with. Um, they tend to be, I, I think, we all think of the, the scenarios being relatively short range and therefore uh, rapid. Uh, in, in effect, the it's easy to focus on the primary effect you want to have on that drone uh, if you're uh, using an active countermeasure or or, or, you know a passive one Uh, but you you have to take a broader approach if you really want to look at the problem uh, properly and look at all of the second and third order effects that may be relevant to whatever decision you're going to make because there usually are plenty of them and you know for, for, for every step it's a so what question that should follow on after that and we were at a UK infrastructure security uh, engagement meeting last year and we were talking about there was a proposition that uh, perhaps security uh, companies could engage uh, in this example jamming it, it, it wasn't, no one's right. suggesting that's about to happen but it was it was a if you like a hypothetical situation and what you actually have there is an air defense problem but no one views it like that unless you have that experience and um what you're asking a uh, potentially a probably quite busy uh security guard in a control room to do was to make an air defense decision about what the, the, the collateral effects of uh uh, a, a, a jamming response might might be acceptable well there's so many so what's fall out of that uh, already that it, i think exactly it's, uh, yeah it's a toughie and um this, one of the things that particularly interests us is um assurance of people providing the service and whether that comes from a recognized body which is probably the ideal uh situation or whether the there's always a customer somewhere uh, whether that the customer can assure themselves at the very least that whoever it is that's providing them with the the informational capability is is competent is is, is really important and that's you know I'm sure we'll get onto it later but that's probably the, the biggest uh, threat to the industry that I, that I see
0: right so you're there you're talking more on the the basis of these potentially count and correct me if I'm wrong, but the counter UAS industry, um, say creating or selling a product that, that doesn't provide that assurance, um, to someone who's needing it as a, a defensive layered approach to, to rogue drones or something. Is that the, the angle you're coming from? I, I am exactly
1: that. And, uh, you know, I'm probably jumping too far ahead here, but th- that is probably the most significant part of the, uh, Question for us uh, in the counter UAS space is um, we're certainly more about um, more than just selling the boxes. It's it, it's about the whole capability, the through life capability, and the uh, the holistic approach. And uh, you know I don't want to sound like some Zen nerd or something about the whole thing. And it, it's not just about <laughs> switching boxes on and off, is my point. And uh, uh, but if uh, if you don't have that experience of all the so what's uh, then it can be a wee bit tricky. I'm not in any way denigrating my peers in the industry at all. It's just simply that, you know, don't ask mm. me to network a computer system because uh, you won't get a very good answer. But uh, I know I know what we know, and uh, we, we feel that our approach in terms of uh, end-to-end support is uh, important. Mm.
0: So that's really interesting because... You know, in in the past, it's it's often been say military um leading innovation and research in some areas, and with the rise of the you know the tech boom and some of these uh, drone companies that are getting much more budget uh and people to work on say drones or even counter drone um systems, it's it's created a culture of being able to put out all these different uh, models and types. You know, we've got. Um, everything from the the jamming to the kinetic to you know in in the lead defensive type of things. Now, does that mean that it's starting to edge out that age old um, you know military or army style decision making process where there was many years of training and you know regulation standards behind it? Do you think we're moving to a point where um, we need to bring back? Some of that. This is almost uh, an area for military decision makers to to jump in. Do you think there's too many? Say, uh, I'll speak from experience on on our side. You know, we have a, a lot of, of hackers or security consultants in the the computer space um, who are looking at drones from a, a cyber point of view, simply because the drone is built um, like a computer. You know, it's got a computer system running on it. But there's a lot of other factors around it that affect that. And if you were to simply jam a drone, um, you know, using the, the, you know, jamming that communication channel, you don't think of the the fact that it might fall on someone or it might fall out of the sky and damage. That whole decision process probably applies to someone when they have a counter drone system as much as when they don't. So what's the, you know, what's the go here? Is that a, is it still a question or do you think it's been answered somewhere else already? I think.
1: Industry has always led the defence sector and and very much security as well. I think where where there's a difference now is traditional military capabilities, things that go bang, tended to be driven by the military requirement. What we see in the counter-US space is that uh, industry is informing the debate itself in terms of capabilities, and uh, it, it's everything from the the cyber approach through to the kinetic approach is very much industry driven i think and the military or of governmental users are cherry picking out the capabilities they like but that's of course what suits mm-hmm. a military end use isn't necessarily something that uh, is appropriate for other, other people in terms of um do you need a military decision making chain not necessarily for what well, we're not in the military but uh, the anymore but the I think there's lessons to be learned from experience, uh, and that's why experience is valuable, uh, because you're not starting from a clean sheet of paper, which doesn't mean innovative approaches aren't uh, good. They're often very good, but um, somebody who's gone through the real-world iterations of, oh, crikey, if we, if we were to do this, what would happen? Uh, that, that's a useful experience set to have, and from my experience in this industry I don't think there's enough emphasis placed on that there as much as on the box uh, there's a lot of you'll see a, if you go to the shows or uh, industry events you there's a lot of emphasis placed on the box but not so much on the um, decision-making mm-hmm. process and capabilities around it and uh, that, that may be fine in some low low end use cases um, but very quickly you start to see that there's a, there's a bit more to it and uh, I, I'm not trying to bang the drum here for from experience particularly but if there was one message I would want people to take away it is you really need to think about this not just from the the counter side you know, to be a doctrinal geek you know the the uh, RF or kinetic options that may exist to uh, defeat uh, a threat but the, the detection piece as well is also uh, important to consider also Watson um, we're, we are about the tech of course but um, we see it as a in the round we see the whole thing in the round and I, I my sense is that um, a lot of people are
0: about the box so you know let's go back to the, the mention you gave towards say a standardized approach or say a regulatory body that maybe can provide that assurance. Um, do you do you mean this in the sense where they're able to, to thoroughly test a system and then give it a, a sort of certification or a rating? Um, do you think that should be per country or system or do you think that should be a global body you know talk me through what you're you're thinking there
1: i can't i can't i don't think be any challenge would get the global body to certify counter uas uh, solutions so that should be quite easy <laughs> uh no no i don't uh, i think uh the the uk approach uh there is an element of standardization starting to creep in now via an organization called the center for protection of national infrastructure (CPNI). Uh, they do what they say on the tin. They they provide advice to critical infrastructure establishments, power stations, uh, uh, for example, and they mm-hmm. run it literally run a catalogue of approved equipment. Not not the full service, but the equipment itself, the hardware, and uh, they are introducing a, a set of standardisation elements for detection equipment. Uh, and and some countermeasures it's it's relatively slow but it's a start it's um you know very much at the crawl end of crawl walk run so we're starting to see something in the uk uh for that and judging by the number of people that's sitting in those rooms when these industry engagement days uh, are held there's plenty (laughs) of people interested in it that's for sure and i think that that will be useful Mm. um what uh, and again what interests us is How do you introduce those standards and what what are they? And um, I think it's quite niche, this this industry, uh, and uh, you need a lot of experience behind it. It took us, uh, I would say, 18 months, comfortably 18 months, to sort of feel comfortable in uh, understanding the technology and where we wanted to be with it and
0: this is with with with, quantum with with quantum itself
1: and and that was going through a lot of relationships and uh, understanding what what we've always found is when you really start to delve into the capabilities they they quite often don't quite deliver what they say Uh, you know it was ever thus of course but uh it's probably no different yeah. to hearing about what the uh you know the economy of your car is you know in the real world it just never delivers what you thought and, and it, it's no different in the county uas space that's for sure um and I, yeah. you know let the buyer beware, beware if there was another you know if we had another message you, you've got to really check the detail of this stuff because uh well, i'm sure we've done it in the past but it, it's, it's quite easy to conduct a demonstration that works when it isn't so easy to do is necessarily get stressed yes. and tested uh, and if, if we mm. found one area of the world that are particularly uh, good at stressing you, it's uh, the Middle East actually and uh, they I think there might, there might be a reputation in that part of the world sometimes that they that they spend the money and work out what to do with things afterwards but uh, the experience, the experience yeah. we've got is actually the, uh, the opposite and they are very much um don't tell me show me uh that's their approach but secondly they're not interested in you doing a demo with your with your set parameters that you know works there no need for them to get out of bed for that so that we've been really pushed uh with some really um interesting scenarios uh that they've set and they really uh take you to the cleaners actually so uh, having been disappointed on wow. so many occasions mm. by people who say they can do things and uh, so that if you're a customer i would say yeah really really ask tough questions if you can uh, of whatever it is you're, you're thinking of spending your hard-earned money on because um uh, it may look superficially like a decent capability but just delve a little deeper
0: yeah i've been to a you know a number of um counter drone testing scenarios and you know sometimes they'll say bring their own drones uh to test on other times uh they will have that flexibility of you know you can bring custom drones racing drones you can trial that kind of thing and and see how they they pair up but um on the end of that scale it's not very common you know it's it's almost they they want to know those parameters that they're working with but on the the Middle East side you know that's really interesting because uh, we've known a lot of counter drone companies to go to the Middle East not just because of the flexibility of being able to execute their technology there compared to say the restrictions in in the US or you know Australia or maybe similar to the UK um, but it does seem like a, a bit of a, a beehive for them at the moment is there any of those tests you could talk about? On here in terms of what they may have um, tried to get you to test, or is that something that's um, that's not on the level of being able to speak about it on a on a podcast like this?
1: Thinking on my feet here, but in broad handfuls, I mean, just to give you an example, they 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 will give you an intelligence scenario, uh, so you have broad brush information about what might be uh, the threat. Uh, and the threat should theoretically be within the approximate capabilities of whatever equipment it is you're using, uh, and they will just push the boundary of that to see what your limits are. And uh, they're not necessarily uh, judging you badly if you fail. For example, we did a, a, a one part of a test we did. we did. We did fail to achieve the effect we wanted, but... So yeah okay understood so he has a little bit of extra information now that has come in deal with that and quickly and so uh, the, the, mm. it, it, it it wasn't just um, a pass or fail type thing and so they they would they would uh, just give you a little bit more and then you go okay how do we react to that let me show you the flexibility of the response we can provide. Can you do that instead? And they like they they like that approach. And uh, you know because they they fully understand that um, the scenarios are not digital. They're they're very they're often very grey, and therefore, if you if you can react to something appropriately, then that's a you know that's an acceptable alternative. And uh, you know we uh, we've seen that quite a bit uh, out there. I've not really seen it. Anywhere else that we've been to, but that's our main focus uh, in this space anyway. So we're we're very much uh, centered on that area. So that would be, you know, I know that's pretty woolly, but I can't get into the detail of it. And uh, completely, uh, they they're interested in they're interested in stressing you, uh, stressing the system. I mean, and uh, quite rightly so Mm -hmm. because some of this stuff doesn't uh, doesn't come cheap, and uh, I don't blame them for that. I would do exactly the same in their position.
0: Yeah, of course, no, certainly, and appreciate you you sharing at least that um that mm-hmm. view of, of your experience there. Now, in terms of what you were demonstrating or the the technology, or at least what quantum does, um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, you know what you're currently offering and how your background, your experience has helped shape what it's currently doing. Well, we actually started out
1: um, providing helicopter integration work into super yachts um, uh, it's at, wow. at the build stage sadly we were you know we were uh, you know the sort of those um, forensic shoe covers on and so we didn't harm the teak decks and things it wasn't that it wasn't very glamorous but uh, it it was in 2015 <laughs> by coincidence we were asked to do some work by the UK Home Office or Ministry of Interior as it's sometimes called in other countries and uh in a security context uh, off the back of our olympic uh, work because the, the group the group that had led the olympic security planning had sort of dispersed into the civilian space and we kind of corralled them back together under our banner uh so we did some broad uh, strategic airspace security work for um one of the nations holding uh, a future world cup and um It was there that we got asked about, um, as they called it, drone detection. Uh, It was for an airport, actually. Uh, And that was 2015. And we started to grow our interest from there. And what rapidly became obvious was that there was no one solution that fit the sort of things we were interested in. There were, you know, there there was some okay rf capability here but you couldn't get a decent uh optical capability or say with the radar and um, jamming or whatever you couldn't find one stop shops that uh created what you wanted uh and i think probably quite a few integration type companies probably say the same but uh, even and that that extends up to the the defense primes as well to be honest with you um you, you, you go to the biggest of them and you'll find one capability in the system might be really good and but there's better stuff out mm. there so um we took an approach of trying to blend best of breed types uh sensors and effectors and uh, that's not the by no means uh the cheapest if that doesn't sound too superficial but you do get the best capability and so that's the approach we right, took right uh and behind that you know going back to this, towards the beginning of the conversation when you take that um sort of experience we have in terms of airspace security training delivery uh, understanding the sort of so what's because we've done it uh you, we, we think that's a for, for us, that's a better approach. We're always very mindful that um, when you're trying to work with a customer, uh, as I've sometimes seen in social media, it doesn't really help to criticize the customer base. Uh, it's very easy to sort of knee-jerk a reaction without the facts or anything. And it, it, the the point is, if, if this industry wants to become credible, and it, it, there are obviously very credible elements out there for sure, uh, if, we want, if we want to stay credible, then it's important to inform and educate the, the customer base as well as just try and sell them things. And uh, that's very much what we're about from our perspective is uh, trying to
0: understand the requirement, not just uh, push a solution. That's really interesting. Um, so do you, do you mean coming across from a training or say awareness perspective or do you you mean in the, the kind of pre-sales let's figure out the best product or response for you um you know can you just explain a little more and what you mean as to you know helping that customer base
1: there's always a danger if, if you're helping inform the requirement that you're kind of marking your own homework a little bit and uh right. that's something we're wary of in fact, we. Often start off with that conversation when the requirement's not very clear, uh, and it often isn't. It often right. isn't. Okay. It often, uh, r- rarely do you get a decent uh, RFI, RFQ document that uh, really mm. articulates what they want. Not, that is not always the case. But it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's it, it's it's often a little bit wooly. Uh, Depends on who the end user might be. So that's one thing, and we, we we're always at pains to point that out. Sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's consideration. Sometimes it's not. And then um, I, it's a fine it's a fine line when you're in a, a commercial operation versus you know a, a traditional educating role that uh, you want to in the initial stages convey uh, assurance to the customer and help them understand what might be required without crossing over. Uh, too far into the informing them for free uh, space because we're a company, we're a commercial company and uh, uh, of course. We're, we're not, we're not in it uh, solely for our education. Uh, but what we hope is for, for genuine clients, they will understand that, ah, oh, okay, we're, these guys seem to know what they're talking about. It's worth continuing with, uh, the conversation with these guys and, uh, and therefore, us taking a degree of risk on
0: informing and educating is worth it. I mean it. It also depends on the where that or when that conversation takes place. You know, if you've got, uh, you know, an incident that comes up very quickly, and I uh, I don't want to necessarily allude to to Gatwick immediately or anything like that, but if something comes up very quickly um, and that knee-jerk response happens and they, they go for the quickest thing um, you know that they can either find or they do try and take their due diligence, um, there's at least that backing where if you've had that conversation or if you've done that educational type of briefing prior, um, it'll at least help make an informed decision within the, the parameters that they're trying to deal with. Um, so is this something that you would potentially be doing to a wide customer base that isn't necessarily looking for an immediate solution you know you're talking on a, a general basis here or someone who approaches you they they want to know what you're doing and want to try and use your product uh, and that's when you kick off that that informational type of approach
1: i think uh Back back in about twenty fifteen, when we, we started to get interested in counter UAS, we were going to the customers. Uh, now they come to us, uh, and it's relatively straightforward for us to deal with it on that basis. So we. From a business perspective, I don't. I don't feel at the moment we need to go out and beat the drum for ourselves, um, because there's enough going on. We're a small company, so there's we have limits with what we can deal with, and we're almost at that. And uh, working with the customers we have right now, th- those relationships are already formed, and it, I, I think it quickly becomes a uh, apparent who's serious and who isn't. Um, although having said that projects always take a, a long time to come to fruition that's for sure for, for, in our experience anyway um so i don't feel the need from quantum's perspective to go to try and do a sort of here's counter US in the round type conversation you know like a stem type chat or a ted talk or something uh, I i don't think That's relevant from our (laughs) perspective, not that we wouldn't do it uh, at all. It's just that um, from from a resource perspective, we're we're better off doing it the way we are. And so when a customer knocks on the door metaphorically we're, we're able to inform them then about what's going on and what our approach is but we're not reaching out directly at the moment now i know a lot of people uh, are doing that and that's great and uh, you know the all sorts of conferences and uh, shows out there where you can get information there and i i in completely endorse that uh, approach it's just that for for us trying to balance time and resource uh, it, it's not probably what Quantum needs to be doing at the moment, but uh, I'm sure guys yeah. like you at DroneSec and, uh, you know, ourselves and other organizations are always available for a chat if uh, somebody needs some uh, some guidance.
0: I think you have some pretty interesting uh, TED Talk stories, <laughs> judging from your, your background and, and experience. I actually, um, one of the, the most interesting things to me, and I'll come back to the, you know, the drone side of it, but... One of the things that picked up my radar was um, the rescue that happened on Ben Nevis.
1: Yeah, well, that that was uh, 2007 uh, on a lovely late May evening in Scotland, where I was based, uh, near Glasgow. Uh, and we get a call about nine o'clock at night, so it's just becoming twilight, although it doesn't get very dark in Scotland in late May. And we fly off to Ben Nevis, which is about uh, 80 miles north, and... Someone, no one had told the weather at Ben Nevis. It was supposed to be a nice day, and uh, uh, it was the polar opposite. It was a, a complete cloud cover, uh, very strong winds, turbulence, uh, frequent hail uh, as lines of squalls went through. And uh, in contrast to the weather when we left, it was absolutely pitch dark. Three guys were caught in what they call the back of the bend, the north side of Ben Nevis, on a place called Tower Ridge, and. Um, they got sort of two-thirds of the way up, two-thirds right. of the way up there and gone, oops, we're stuck, and they were in a bit of trouble. So um, between us and the, uh, the local mountain rescue team, of called Lock Arbor, it's based at Fort William, uh, which is basically the town at the bottom of Ben Nevis, which is 4,500-foot mountain, give or take. Um, we spent the night rescuing them, and... Uh, I suppose the reason it got a bit of interest is because there was something for everybody in that rescue uh, there was the horrible weather conditions uh, the the fact that as what what's new the wind was blown in the wrong direction for the helicopter so instead of you know if you're in a helicopter you like the the wind coming from your in your face but it was coming behind and to the left of us made it very difficult very mm. turbulent which is probably the the main thing, but coupled with the fact that they were in the cloud line, and whenever you hover your helicopter sort of uh, the cloud base, you tend to create this local suction effect and bring the cloud down even more. And uh, so we ended up wow. in a, some fairly hairy moments where I couldn't really see anything except the, the spotlight at the bottom of my right boot, and uh, we couldn't even see the tail of the aircraft at this point as we tried to grub our way back down into somewhere a bit safer and try and rescue them again and uh, it, it went on and on uh, one of my uh, one of the night vision goggle tubes i right, was wearing fell off and gently bashed off my cheek as we were hovering next to the hill at one point <laughs> we were running out of fuel i deliberately let wow. the fuel run low because i wanted to have as much power margin as possible but that that started to get a little bit um closer for comfort than perhaps would have liked uh, and so on and so on and and and, and it um we did get them in the end, though. So it took about uh, ten hours mm-hmm. to get those guys off the hill, and um, it was fairly, wow. fairly emotional at times. But you know, like all these rescues that, that mm-hmm. get recognition, it's a bit like a lot of things. It's a fine line. If it goes well, congratulations, you're all heroes. If it goes badly, then you think, you think you're a bunch of idiots <laughs> and you should never have done it. So uh, you know, they yeah. uh, they but for the grace of God go I. And, uh, they, it was. Uh, g- an interesting experience that, uh, you know, I'm sure anyone who's been in this sort of game will go, yeah, well, you should have seen me on this hill or whatever, or, or, or this boat <laughs> right. out in the Atlantic or, you know, there's, there's plenty of tales of uh, great rescues that, you know, didn't get the recognition. So it's just one of many. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it got a bit of traction as these things do and um, various, uh, various awards were won, but uh, you know, Uh, uh, It was nice to shake the Queen's hand, I'll I'll, I'll say that.
0: (laughs) All right. Wonderful. Uh, It's something I I thought could be in a a talk on drones, but then again... Uh, it's probably not the type of environment a drone could have survived at that point, especially one that's trying to look for or an attempt to rescue someone. So it's back to a good old mechanical power. They're they're
1: definitely getting used more in in the search and rescue space for sure and in in all sorts of security applications as well. But The the tricky thing in a scenario like that, and it kind of plays into – Airports and uh, other use cases for the drone is um, the situational awareness uh, around the drone for, for the operator themselves. And uh, we know we've just seen DJI introduce ADS-B, uh, haven't we, uh, for, for new mm, systems? With the essence. Yeah, with yeah. A, right. Uh, that's fine. And that's giving you some SA there for sure. But in the context of me being next to Ben Nevis, um, the, the, only, the only way <laughs> a apart from just the sheer environmental conditions would, uh, you know, you needed to be in a tent on helicopter, otherwise, you, you'd be gone. Uh, but it, the SA for in, in that context is delivered by the various cameras on the drone or camera, and you're just looking through that drinking straw, and the peripherals are not there. Now, I know the drone, it's wow. of course, you know, you get the anti collision uh, stuff uh, that a lot of uh, drones have now, but that, that, uh, that situational awareness for the uh, operator isn't there. And this is part of the issue when you look at uh, somebody who might be benignly, in their view, taking a picture of a guy landing his jet uh, at an airport. You, you can't see what's to the left, right, and behind you uh, very easily. Uh, and um, I think the ADSB thing's interesting from Airsense uh, for sure. I think it's asking quite a lot of. Um, an amateur drone operator. Well, let me qualify that. Very professional drone operators uh, can do amazing <laughs> things with their drones for sure. But I think the difference often between a drone operator and uh aviation experienced person, like a, a pilot or a navigator or something is that the air awareness is not there. Uh, and, Mm. just as i'm not an expert in uh, you know brain surgery although i could have read a book on it and you know understand the uh, anatomy of the brain i've not i haven't got just don't have the experience of the air environment it doesn't mean i can't operate my drone uh perfectly well but when you're when you try and integrate that operation into the air environment that is a different challenge and i know a lot of aviation authority people who'd say that and the I'm, I'm talking in an air airport context, but you know, it, of course, yeah. Drones tend to affect other things in the air, and, and um, that that there's that difference in what um, like delta is probably a better way to describe it in, in experience between a very good drone operator, but not necessarily aviation or air environment aware, and uh, that that's mm-hmm. a gap that sometimes is bridged in our view. Um, I'm not I'm not sure it's uh, always done very well.
0: And I mean, what, one question I have um, just on what you mentioned is the, the whole close proximity side of things. You know, I, I don't have an aviation background, but what what I always wonder is that close proximity of having the drone, being able to be so close to the ground uh, and people and objects and locations. Is it at all relatable to any part of aviation Um that, you know, obviously the, the whole airspace part is, but that close proximity side of things, do you find any of that new or is this same old for, for aviation? You know, is this a an area that they're having to kind of recalibrate and look at through a different lens?
1: I think yes and no is the answer. They're, they're using, uh, when we look at, you know, UTM uh, projects and unmanned traffic management, they... Uh, what is informing that? It's ATM, airspace traffic management. Uh, so they're going from a known there and reading it across. The, the there's, You automatically introduce uh, a higher level of risk into drone operations because we constrain them to very low operating altitudes, and therefore they're a lot closer to where most of the obstacles tend to be. So um, uh, yeah, that. imagine <laughs> such a thing. so uh, those pesky buildings and hills and things that get in the way of things and <laughs> birds and, uh, and all sorts of things like that. So, you know, the bird strikes don't tend to happen at uh, 35,000 feet. So the um, you're, you're in a, uh, a higher risk environment automatically when you're in the drone space. Uh, if you're well anywhere, really, but particularly in an urban environment. So it, your general aviators uh, would tend to be at least 500 feet or above. Uh, when when they're flying, and the uh, drone guys are compressed down into the really, really low uh, band of airspace that they operate. Mm. So mm. this is what presents a challenge for the UTM projects, uh, but you know, there's some very interesting work going on uh, to enable that, to get that known traffic environment, and so that uh, you've got, on one hand, the... the Shaping of the traffic environment. On the other hand, you've got the the drones themselves that are pr- doing whatever it is they do. You know, organ delivery, delivering a pizza, mm. whatever. Uh, doing some survey work. They they need uh, careful control. So in the UTM space, we're not talking about operating the drone. You know, with a guy with his remote control. We're talking about relatively autonomous operation, BV uh, laws type uh, operation and. Um, introducing that goes right back to the beginning of the conversation. There's a lot of so what's in that. uh, I've been quite impressed with a lot of the work that's been going on um, in the States and uh, the UK uh, on this. I'm, I'm not really aware of other projects beyond those countries. I'm sure they're going on, but uh i think there's a lot of good work going on but i i don't think it's about to happen in the next five minutes we're going to see unfortunately drones my pizza is going to arrive uh, by drone but you know hopefully in the future (laughs) i'll get my uh, my amazon package will arrive it'd be quite exciting if nothing else
0: we have um here in in australia in uh, our capital uh we had some of the you know the project wing uh and some of the other drone delivery programs authorized you know for operation something quite interesting though is that um the the city or the capital of Canberra is well known for having a almost building height limit, so it's it's got lots of flat, um, wide areas of buildings, but none of them are very high. So it kind of makes a, a great testing space for um, you know these types of UTM based uh, autonomous drones. But I'm you know I'm yet to see. If that would uh, change the way C-UAS or counter UAS systems would react um, in that kind of environment, but I mean, you have a you have a few different products with Quantum, or at least some that you you recommend. Have any of those had some research or thought about um, the autonomous or the UTM style of technology coming in, or are they currently based around these rogue? operators with manual control um, over the drone at this point in time? The, uh, y-
1: yes and no is the answer. So the, the, the I was going to say low end, but be slightly disingenuous. The, the um, couple of uh, electronic scan radars we use uh, from Fortum are heavily involved in a NASA Project amongst others in uh, UTM projects in the states because they have they, they have read really across of course you know uh, the same in simple terms you are detecting a drone uh, someone else decides if it should should or mm-hmm. not should not be there uh, that, those products are uh, in, in use now uh, I think in the UK the uh, project Zenith is concentrated on um, RF detection to to shape the known space in addition to air traffic radars. But uh, having been talking very recently with some people in that organization, they're going to start to introduce the same sort of radar capability that um, we provide from Fortum. And uh, it makes perfect sense. We, I think if you hook into the autonomy thing, if we are, Relying on uh, autonomous drones that may not have an obvious RF signature, uh, the, the known ones will almost certainly have uh, electronic conspicuity of some sort, whether it's ADSB or whatever. Uh, then that that's easy. But w- what interests us? We are we're a, we're a counter drone company. We're not we're not a UTM company. So uh, what what interests us is how do we how do we identify and potentially Uh, mitigate uh, drones that should not be there Uh, and that's very much our focus so the equipment that we recommend currently is very much uh, centered on that use case uh, the count the counter side and uh I think UTM is fascinating. I think there's the second-order benefits from some of the technology because if you providing um, you've you've got situational awareness of the drones that should be there, then you probably can find the ones that aren't there as well if you've got a layered approach to it. So there's a that's a useful uh, thing because you you definitely want to know when something's not cleared in in an airspace or an airway, particularly when it's, when the reaction time to there being a problem will be very short uh, and there's not the drone doesn't have very far to fall out of the sky if it gets interfered with so you definitely need to have that awareness so there's a natural crossover between what we do in
0: the UTM piece but it's not our focus at all. I mean one of my my question for you based on you know not having a a presence in or understanding the the UK side of things um, all that well is often customers when looking for say CUS will ask the first questions around say price um, or testing. You know uh, what types of models can it work with? How do we run this? You know, is it battery operated? Is it you know what kind of all those types of things? And then regulation is the the number one thing that ends up stopping them from actually having the product. Uh, the the counter US company will say, well, you know, actually our uh, our workable Tech uh, is legal in the Middle East, but here in, say, Australia or the US, we have a modified version that that just detects. Um, so, I guess for you know, from me coming from from a point of unknowing in the UK, what types of counter UAS technologies are you currently working that with? That are currently restricted. That you are you hoping to get into them, or is it a case of, you know, is there any kind of laws or regulations currently? restricting you from being able to create a system that will detect, stop, and recognize or remediate the, the problem of yeah, a Yeah, it, de- it definitely
1: is, and we're in the same sort of position as you guys in Australia or, or the States, and to be honest, a lot of countries, especially any Western countries, uh, the, the use of the RF spectrum is very closely controlled, so uh, this tends to be the traditional go-to countermeasure, doesn't it, the, the idea of jamming from... Cheap Chinese mm-hmm. rifle that probably ira- irradiates you <laughs> as much as it does the target through through some more focused stuff. That the um, you get what you one thing you get what you pay for in RF jamming. That's for sure. And um, whenever I hear someone talking about the range of my jammer, I start to get worried straight away because it's very much a ratio based thing. Without boring the, the any listeners if they if they're still listening uh, to this chat. No, uh, enough. Yeah. They, it's very much a ratio-based thing, based on the distance between the controller and the the drone, and uh, how you uh, affect that. But RF jam is very limited here. It's you know same for most of us. It tends to be the premise of uh, law enforcement or the military, uh, and even then, uh, with uh, great caution. And you you were talking about what, what does a customer ask? Well. We get asked quite a lot, so what if I detect a drone? What's the point of detecting it? There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, Am I any worse off if I didn't know? Well, possibly, possibly not. Mm. And it's certainly a frustration uh, for for customers. So what are we doing? Uh, We were with the UK Civil Aviation Authority a couple of weeks ago talking about these very things. And and the jamming pieces in conversation – Uh, for sure. There's there's talk of, you know, jamming for prisons, for airports. Uh, It it would probably, if, if, a big if, uh, it it becomes something that's viable for non-law enforcement or security people, then it'll be in very strictly controlled use cases for critical infrastructure, be it an airport or a power station, maybe a prison, who knows? But it's not happening anytime soon. So it'll be on a case by case basis if you get some really urgent need that's been maybe ongoing for a while. So, what, um, from our perspective, what are we trying to do? We have an alternative, and, and you're right about the Middle East, by the way. Yeah, it's definitely a different space there. Um, the alternative for us is. Uh, a thing called Drone Hunter, which in itself requires uh, permission to use. It's a, a, a drone to interdict a drone, which is, you know, I know there's various iterations of these things out there. Uh, as always, it's hard to find one that works. Uh, and this does, but the, in the UK, uh, it's an offence to interfere with an aircraft in flight without permission. Uh, and I think that's the same for mm-hmm. you guys and uh, and definitely in the US. So you this isn't something that some guy uh, would, you know, festival organizers wouldn't be doing this or whatever. It, it only applies mm. in specific use cases. But because it is not uh, getting into the RF spectrum, so no matter how much we talk about, we can manage the fratricide side of um, RF jamming, it's just not a popular option in, in uh, a Western country. Um This is a viable alternative, and but uh, we very much uh, use it on a crawl water run basis. And so, if you are uh, an airport, for example, I'm only talking about the UK now. um, You you need specific use case uh, and permission granted from the CAA, and I can tell you it's a dry and weighty document that backs up. Um, (laughs) We've got a CCO who enjoys doing these things, so um, it's not.
0: A five minute job oh, to introduce, lucky.
1: but it, it, it's, a, it's a viable answer to the so what of detecting a drone but it is not for everything so uh, this 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 is the eternal conundrum I think in, in this space for uh, a lot of people is uh, I think the FAA have um, been fairly clear recently haven't they about uh, that in the states you can't use countermeasures um, at a local level no matter what, it's got to be a very, very specific, uh, authorization, you know, DHS uh, type people who are going to be authorized to use that. And that's not necessarily very helpful if your airport's been closed for several hours because the economic effects are stacking up pretty quickly, not to mention all the other issues that uh, yeah. come around that. So, um, it, it, very, very challenging space to be in for sure. But from a UK perspective, we're comfortable mm. with where we are at, at quantum, but, uh, I, you know, I, I can't speak, for example, for, for the Australian situation and what the appetite mm. for managing that is. You can probably inform me far better.
0: No, I mean it's it's a it's a good question to have, and I think we'll we'll keep discussing this until say laws or regulations change. But there's also the the flip side of things. For example, you know, with the the drone hunter, um, there's a, a similar concept where it doesn't result in intercepting the aircraft where your drone would go up, it would simply lock on to the offending drone um, using, you know, recognition or or what have you. And then it would follow that drone back to the operator and attempt to simply spot where the operator is and then bring the the local law enforcement to that point, um, you know, the boots on the ground. And that way there's no, you know, unless it gets close to things or, or breaks further laws, it's it's not interfering with that aircraft now obviously there's a a few issues with that not only the the beyond visual line of sight and and so forth but do you do you see any of these bypassing of (laughs) if you will um some of those issues as solutions i mean is there any kind of solutions you think at this point in time would be able to do those workarounds um for the benefit of say uh, let's say, let's take your example of a festival, um, where a festival could collaborate with law enforcement to track down someone who was who was threatening or potentially harming well, their, their guests. You just
1: described exactly um, the alternative use case for Drone Hunter uh, or, or Plan B, uh, as required uh, that that ability to. Work. Uh, we're careful with the word autonomous in the UK but autonomously follow a drone back because it's got an onboard radar and uh, once it's got it it's Mm. got not everything but most uh, drones it's got a performance overmatch on so uh, there's no great drama with following it back and it's got a first uh, it's got a uh, video downlink that permits you to uh, see what's going on and it's all uh, mapped so that is exactly the use case uh, in the situations where we don't want to interdict the drone uh, dynamically. Uh, I, I agree with you uh, entirely that for, for your non-airport or critical infrastructure use, it's a viable, uh, potentially a viable uh, capability. The issue of the boots on the ground means that um, we certainly do this in the airport context, as you whether or not you've got local permission or not you need to have that uh extra layer of cooperation with your police or equivalent uh for sure because at the end of the day the only people yeah. who are legally empowered to uh deal with the offenses are the police so uh they've got to be in the conversation every time and uh, you know but you you've perfectly described the alternative use of uh, drone hunter there so thank you very much mike
0: of course well i mean i uh i really appreciate you you discussing some of these topics um, especially when they're you know some of the questions can be quite pointed and so forth but um, you have a really good insight into the area coming from um, the background that you have and the experiences you have and um, I guess if there's if there's anywhere else maybe that you or quantum are making a uh, or presenting or say talking or either can just be contacted or available um is there anything like that coming up are you giving any demos just in case someone wants to to get a hold of you um and discuss similar or you know concepts we've talked about
1: the answer to that is in the public arena no we're i'm pleased to say awfully busy so uh, awfully busy is not a, i'm very happy to be very busy uh, but anyone can contact us by the website the numbers are then emails are there and we'll be delighted to talk to anybody who wants to have a conversation about this uh, these topics
0: yeah wonderful well martin i have taken um an hour of your time and and i don't know how much uh, more you have but um i really appreciate your you know you coming on and, and sharing this information um with me it was really good to have you and um, hopefully sometime in the future you'll be back on joining us Um, is there anything further you'd like to to say or any questions you may have had anything you want to discuss um, before we we start closing it up
1: Uh, a subject that's maybe worth just briefly touching on is the 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 introduction of tighter drone regulation um, which is an understandable reaction to some of the events we've seen recently um not just in the uk but in other places as well it, for us at quantum the the onus is very much on malign drone operation and uh, mitigating that it um i i think it's easy to get seduced by uh malign drone use and there's a tendency to try and tar the entire drone industry with a with a with an incompetent brush and uh I think we should all remember that the heart of this is 90% of all drone operations are perfectly safe, legal, sensible, and good fun. And, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, not to mention innovative and useful. So um, I think sometimes we need to just remember the drone operators as opposed to the counter guys. And uh, th- those guys are mm-hmm. in the main, like just like everybody in, in most walks of life doing, doing a fine job, not get, not, not bothering anybody. And uh, I, 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 I just caution too much regulation of the drone industry itself because you it might get, might capture seventy percent of the or eighty percent of the people that are, you know operating drones, but they're not the people who are creating any issues. Most people are fine. It's it's a very mm. small minority that uh, create real real trouble uh, using the drones in the wrong way, and they're the, certainly the people that interest us at Quantum, but. Um, Just a shout out for the drone industry because actually, you know, it's
0: it's a really interesting and uh, fascinating world. And that's where you know we we hope counter UAS get to the point where they're good enough to have that the the cohabitation between recreational, um, passionate drone flyers, the commercial industry, um, you know, and everything in between will be able to take place, innovate be able to enjoy the technology and it's funny you mentioned that because i i have come across one or two conversations where recreational drone flyers uh don't even realize that counter drone creators or say maintainers of the technology are avid drone flyers themselves they love their own drones they fly them and they're part of the industry that is is trying to make it safer and reduce that small very uh, newsworthy sector of malicious drones so that the rest can innovate and have exactly. fun and so forth. So,
1: yeah, 99% of uh, drone use is perfectly reasonable. Doesn't tend to make the headlines, does it? No, you're right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're, we're probably seeing more. And I mean, we're probably uh, an unfortunate testament to this. I mean, we, we try to raise awareness and bring focus to what is happening. But the unfortunate reality is that. Um, The issues and security risks within drones can often overshadow the innovations and the amazing progress that they are making elsewhere. Yeah, Yeah, and I'm sure you've seen that as well, you
1: know? It makes perfect sense, you know, started in the military context, but uh, it will definitely osmose into uh, the civilian world very quickly once it gets going. Um, I think the issue is. As with a lot of things, when things go wrong, they can go wrong quite quickly uh, in terms of uh, malign use, and uh, so th- there's definitely a response required. So th- I'm not trying to unsell the, the counter UAS element and the importance of it uh, if it's delivered properly at all. But uh, yeah, I think we need to, you know, we need to take a, a broad look outlook on all this and go. Well, actually, this is this is a good thing. We want to enable drone use, not 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 uh, restrict it too, too much.
0: Mm. Do you think that is the the biggest misconception you've you've come across, or is there something, uh, that you may have come across that you would like to set the record straight for? Um, I mean that was pretty much self explanatory, you know, in itself. Um, is there anything else that you'd well, like to, I, to I, mention?
1: Only in the sense that uh, it's quite easy to knee jerk reaction to um events that involve drones and uh rapidly introduce regulation or legislation that uh seems to deal with the problem or it makes you as a a lawmaker it makes you feel a little bit better that you did something but in reality uh what is the problem the problem is mainly malign malign people uh operating drones to disrupt or or worse um that that's the right of arc in terms of the problem the other piece is actually education not regulation and providing you've got a, a, a good training and education piece going so the you're doing the drone operators a, or would be drone operators a favor in terms of helping them uh be, be safer mm-hmm. uh because if they're safer then they get more flexibility to use the thing because it's good fun or it's useful or whatever then that that's probably the best solution for me but the regulation itself Probably just captures more of the people that weren't a problem in the first place, uh, to a degree. So uh, you know, we, yeah. we, we very much uh, favour a balanced view. That's that, that, that's the point I try and make.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know some people are attempting to to start the whole um, drone safety. You know, drones cohabiting with each other uh, and airspace and close proximity. Objects and so forth from from high schools. I know there's um Tony Reed in the US has been creating a a, a high school program for that in primary school, but um it probably just needs uh, education from a number of different areas. Um but no, appreciate your your thoughts, Martin. And um, look, it's been really good having you on. Uh, I appreciate the time and, and effort. And I do wish Quantum all the best. I'll, I'll certainly let you know if I'm over there. If you spend the majority of your time in the UK um i'll I'll come and give you a visit or something like that i think that'd be great ladies and gentlemen that is all we have for today with uh, martin Lanny. we really hoped you enjoyed listening to that i personally found some of those stories just fascinating and um i i'm sure we'd need a couple more hours of conversation to really dig into all the different topics on drone security that martin and quantum are currently tackling so um, last of all, if you'd like to get in touch with Martin, you can find him on LinkedIn or his company at quantumaviation.co.uk. Um, finally, a, a huge shout out to Privosec for sponsoring the, the cost of this episode. And in the meantime, if you would like to drop us a message, feedback, or even speak in the show, you can reach us at dronesec.xyz. Until the next episode, have a wonderful week. Take care of your drones and good night.